We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences in ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your word and the wisdom that you uh, inspired Paul to write with, to tackle issues, even uh, what can be controversial issues in the church, things that can could cause schisms or uh, elitism or defeatism or things like that, Lord. And just we marvel at the way you moved Paul to write this chapter. And I just pray that your spirit would move me to uh, just break it apart, rightly divide it in truth. Uh, Lord, that you would bring correction to our church. Lord, wherever we have erred on the side of, Lord, we're just dead spiritually. Uh, Lord, that you would just breathe fresh life, just a wind of your spirit into our body. But Lord, maybe where we have a, an appearance of spiritual life and enthusiasm and just uh, craziness, and maybe there's really no life in that. There's, there's actually death underneath that. That, Lord, you'd correct us and bring us to truth. However we've been erring, Lord, correct us. And, Lord, just breathe just the life of your spirit into our body. That we would be not ignorant concerning spiritual gifts, but uh, very, very knowledgeable in it and very alive and active in uh, the manifestations of your spirit among us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, as we get into this chapter, uh, it just has a great introduction in verse 1, where it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Paul shifts gears. Uh, the theme of order within church gatherings continues uh, since chapter 8, but the topic of church order changes uh, from last week, the Lord's Supper, to this week, the use of spiritual gifts, the function of spiritual gifts, the distribution of spiritual gifts. And this topic is going to continue on through chapter 14 with a slight seemingly parentheses around chapter 13, uh, the chapter dealing with love uh, among our worship gatherings. Uh, it, he says, concerning these spiritual gifts, brethren. Uh, the word gifts here was actually added by the translators and in the original text would say concerning spirituals. Concerning spirituals. And as you look at the context, it's obvious that, uh, that it's talking about spiritual gifts here. The Phillips translation says, I want to give you some further information about spiritual matters. As the pastor Clark defines spiritual gifts, these are gracious endowments upon believers leading to miraculous results. And these all came by extraordinary influences 
of the Holy Spirit upon believers. Notice that he's talking to brethren here. This is addressed to those who are part of the household of faith. And he says, concerning spirituals, concerning spiritual matters, spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be ignorant. Or in the Greek, ignaeo, where we get the word agnostic, which means we fail to understand the subject. Paul often speaks of ignorance in the New Testament, and it's often concerning subjects we often fail to understand. We are prone to be ignorant concerning these subjects. And so he uses this statement, ignorance, often to address matters that are exceptionally important, something that we need to be absolutely clear on. Even if there's controversy, that we wouldn't avoid it, but we would dive into it and, and look at the whole context of Scripture, that we might, might not set it aside or just become agnostics on the topic, uh, but that we would have a true, biblical, right, theological, doctrinal understanding of the matter. And it's not just here in chapter 12 concerning spiritual gifts, but in Romans chapter 2 verse uh, 4, Paul says, uh, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the goodness of God leading us to repentance. So often we're ignorant that, that God's goodness, his redemptive qualities and what he's done for us lead us to action, lead us to repentance. Or in Romans chapter 6, 3, that, that we're not to be ignorant that when we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. And many people are ignorant of that fact. They think that baptism is just some religious experience that they do and that's it. But realize that they are actually linking themselves with the Lord Jesus. He died and I've died. As Galatians 2 would say, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. Rory's dead. The old man's dead. What he wants, what he dreams, it's no longer about him. It's about Christ. And wouldn't you say that's, there's an ignorance about that when people come to the waters of baptism and then they leave the waters and just continue living how they've always lived? Paul says, don't you know that when you've been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his death? It's the same word there, uh, speaking of ignorance or agnosticism. Uh, concerning God's plan for Israel. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says, Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery of what God is doing with the nation, the people of Israel, lest you would be wise in your own opinion. You don't understand that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then as you look at the context of Romans, one day all Israel will be saved. He says in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, we looked at this six weeks ago. <laughs> I wish I could say two weeks ago, but no, it was something like six weeks ago, uh, where he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning our fathers, talking about the Old Testament examples that we would learn from them what not to do. And wouldn't you say within the church there's a great ignorance about the Old Testament and the stories of the Old Testament and what they point to and the lessons that they give us. Finally, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 speaks of the resurrection of the dead, what happens to people after their, their death. 
the rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, all those things, uh, the church has just put it aside. It's controversial. We're not even going to go there. We're not even going to think about it. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning what's going to happen in the last days and when the resurrection from the dead is going to take place. And, um, and so here we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, might end up being like a four-week series that we do. I'm just, you know, just studying and studying and trying to pull it apart and see what it could be, what the Lord would have for us. But we get into this section of Scripture, a beautiful, very important section concerning spiritual gifts. And if you've been part of the church long, it is something that the church is incredibly ignorant on. In fact, if I were to ask you today, what, what are your spiritual gifts? Or what is your spiritual gifts? And who, how has it been distributed to you? And how is it to be used? And what is the purpose of that spiritual gift? 99% of the church has no clue what their spiritual gift even is, or if they have a gift, how it was given to them, how it's to be used properly within the church, or to what end it's to be used. And, and I'd say that's even true for our body today, even among some of the most uh, mature of us. There's unbelievable confusion and attack upon the church concerning spiritual gifts because they're so important for the life of the believer. They're in the life of the church. Satan brings great confusion concerning spiritual gifts and he abuses spiritual gifts upon quote unquote Christian denominations. All sorts of wrong teachings concerning spiritual gifts produce wrong living out spiritual gifts, which bring ineffectiveness in the body of Christ, building up one another and going out into the world to evangelize the world and make disciples of all nations. It is all tied together and the enemy wants to bring division, confusion and attack on the subject. Spiritual gifts are essential they are essential for effectiveness within our body. It's in the Holy Spirit's giving of spiritual gifts and our using of these spiritual gifts that the church is edified, built up, and is effective in going out into the world. When the church studies spiritual gifts, one man said, they are at the knife edge of ministry. It's no wonder that the church is here now, at about 1 a.m., I just made a quick short list just thinking about where God has our church right now. And this is probably just a, maybe a snapshot of what God's doing in our body. But no wonder God would have us here in this incredibly important section of the New Testament as our church is seeing great growth right now that we've never seen in the four and a half years that I've been here. Praise God. Praise God. You know, over the years, we've had people come to our church, and, and at the same time, we've had people leave the church, and so it's just kind of stayed, you know, kind of like this. And right now, I believe this year, we've just seen growth, growth. God is adding to the church. He's saving people. We're baptizing people. They're being discipled and plugged in. We're growing right now, like, like never before. Such an encouraging thing. Families being added to the church, individuals being added to the church, youth that are getting saved in high school and coming without their family and being discipled and fasting and praying with us. Incredible. We have a growing youth ministry like we've never seen the youth ministry grow numbers-wise right now. That's a, a very exciting thing. We have a school in our church 
that weekly gets together with the intent of equipping saints for the work of the ministry, that we would have more of a, of a, of a leadership base to go out and lead our body and to, to lead it in truth and in right doctrine and to go out and, and church plant and be missionaries and raise disciples and just do church well in, in, in Prineville and to do it biblically and to do it with a, with a mission, with a vision of going out, of going. Very exciting. Even the closing of the oasis this last week and seeking God now for direction on how to move forward, what God would have. Maybe not one big, just one thing, the oasis, but all sorts of things. Praying for the youth in this community and, and that they would be saved. Praying for just the huge need in our foster care system in this town and how we might bring the gospel to help in that um, all across the board. Very exciting. Very exciting. Right now, the elders are discussing and just looking at the word on what the deacon office would look like in this church, that those would, who would serve in the church and free the pastors up to pray and to give attention to the scriptures is very important as we're going through this, that our body knows what their gifts are and how to use them rightly. So no wonder we are on the knife edge of ministry right now as a church as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so may the Holy Spirit reveal to us why he's placed us in this church and you, why he's placed you. And don't think I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to you. Why he's placed you, young, old, rich, poor, whatever. Why he's placed you in this church for such a time as this and why he's given you the gift that he has given you for his purpose in this church. Now, something that Paul is addressing here in the context to the Corinthians, that the question is the same for Prineville today, is what are the key evidences of spirituality? Concerning spiritualism, brethren, concerning spiritual men, spiritual wisdom, spiritual gifts, what are the key evidences of something that is truly, genuinely, radically, bona fide, spiritual? All right? You need to know this. I need to know this. It's the same question that the Corinthians were asking among themselves that Paul addresses. It's the same question that we need to address today. Is something that is truly spiritual at Calvary Chapel of Crook County something that is ecstatic? Something that is dramatic? Is that is what's truly spiritual? Something that's euphoric? Something that's exciting, something that's exhilarating, something that brings goosebumps, something that raises the volume in our speech and gets us all sweaty, something that brings passion. Is that what's truly spiritual, bona fide, no doubt about it? That's what's truth, truly spiritual. Many of us believe the same things that confused the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. Specifically, that the truly spiritual are those that are able to manifest these things in their life. And as you look at the context, that might be really dramatic prophesying or speaking out in tongues or miraculous healings. It's these things that just totally tell us that someone is spiritual beyond a shadow of a doubt. And we think that, and I have thought that. And so Paul would have a word for us from the context of the scriptures today, where we're at in 2013 Calvary Chapel of Crick County, 
And we're going to see it in verse 2. He says, You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Now, hopefully you're remembering who the Corinthians were and who Paul was writing here. Remember, they lived in a, in a pagan area of, an, of Grecian influence where they were coming out of, now that they were Christians, they were coming out of pagan worship, having all kinds of pagan superstitious practices involved in their worship. This did not prepare them for an accurate understanding of spiritual gifts and spiritual manifestations. Peter would say, hey, we've spent enough of our past lifetime doing those wills of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And yet, for the Corinthians, those, that type of hype, superstition, uh, it was carried over into church worship services so often. And perhaps that's true of us today. And so today, we want to do inductive Bible study. We want to do what's called exegesis, which means we're pulling out of the scriptures. We're drawing out of the scriptures what God would have out of the scriptures. We let the text speak for itself. But so often we do what's called eisegesis, which is where we read in our past, our beliefs, our bents, our, you know, how we grew up. I grew up Baptist. I grew up Pentecostal. And so however I read this, I'm going to cram that in there and I'm going to read that into the text. That's eisegesis. That's what we don't want to do. Okay. Sometimes it's even good stuff that's just not what the Bible says. Okay. Or it's not what the text says. So today, let's draw out. Let's all just set aside. Man, I was raised Baptist. Rory Rogers, raised Baptist. Had a period of hyper-Pentecostalism, getting slain in the spirit and getting knocked down, screaming, rolling, eyes, eyeballs rolling in the back of my head, all that kind of stuff, okay? Been there, been a part of that, all right? And so I want to lay aside everything that I've been. I want to say, Lord, just shape me, direct me today according to your word. And this is what we're going to ask God to do for the next four weeks, maybe, all right? Where we see that perhaps our past teachings that we've heard or our past experiences that we've been a part of, have built a poor understanding of the Holy Spirit and of his gifts to us. And so it's very easy for us to take our experiences or our desire for materialism and stuff, or maybe even our superstitious or dramatic views, or maybe our liberal spiritual views or our conservative spiritual views, and to bring them into our understanding of spiritual gifts. And today, we just want to lay those aside and just say, Lord, speak to me from your word. When the Corinthians read this letter from Paul, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew what was called mystery religions, okay? Mystery religions to all of them meant uh, their background of occultic superstitions, bizarre stuff going on, and believe me, man, when people are worshiping idols, there's stuff that happens. And it's not that the idol is real, it's that there's demonic influence behind it that makes the statue sweat or bleed or wiggle or something like that, all right? They're like seeing stuff, okay? And they are able to attest for superstitious stuff taking place, uh, bizarre stuff, dramatic stuff, ecstatic stuff, all matters of weird forms of spirituality, and you can trace all of these religious experiences clear back to Genesis chapter 11 to the Tower of Babel. 
at the Tower of Babel where we tried to work our way up to the heavens and take care of ourselves from this point on. And from the Tower of Babel on, there's been little seeds of all of this occultic, superstitious type stuff creeping into true, genuine uh, spirituality that is biblical and it's godly and it's what he desires for us. Gods and goddesses have popped up all over the place in uh, Judeo-Christianity. And we see it in the Old Testament and we see it happening in our text. It's trying to creep in to the Corinthian church. Ecstasy and immorality. These activities that were coupled with sexual immorality. Dramatic, bizarre, had a kind of an appeal to the natural man. It's something that we want. We want to be a part of that. And you would ask yourself, what's changed in the last 2,000 years? What do we see different in 2013? Not much. Not much. It still tries to creep in. The dramatic and the ecstatic and the bizarre have an immense appeal to us. And, and sometimes to me as well. We subject ourselves to all kinds of bizarre experiences because we've never experienced the actual, the true, the right. And therefore, we're not able to point out what is counterfeit, what's a fraud. And the Corinthian church was confusing enthusiasm with the real thing. Dramatic, hyped up stuff with the real power that was way more than we could ever muster up on our own. We have the false assumption that whatever is dramatic is divine. That it's the touchstone of reality. And so untaught Christians need to be taught true doctrine. That they might worship God in spirit and in truth. And he says, you all know that you were carried away by these dumb idols. I like that, don't you? Dumb idols or mute idols, silent gods. In Psalm chapter 115, verses 5 through 8, the psalmist writes of these false gods, and he says, They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they don't handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. If you make a dumb idol that's not real, can't do anything, it's a chunk of stone, it's a block of wood, you're just like them. You become dumb. You become mute. You become unable to hear and commune with the living, real God. In the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, fine, Troy, just get out of here. We talked early. He's like, I got to leave, so don't think that I, yeah, we all know. We all know the truth. We love you, Troy. Have a great day. Isaiah and Jeremiah speak of the goldsmiths that go and they harvest the gold and then they, you know, they chisel it and they shape it and they mold it. Or the, the guy that goes out and chops a tree down and, and gets the log and he's like whittling it, you know, and then he like puts it up and he expects it to hear and then it falls over and he's got to set it back up again. It's, it's dumb. All right. It's dumb. And if you worship these false gods, you become just like them. The Old Testament speaks Many times about that. We don't have time to get into it today. 
But it's the same with us today in the false gods that we raise up, whether it's a God of experiencing something that's not God or a God of worshiping and loving on and pouring into something. It could be a person, a place, a thing, a hobby, a passion, a life, anything that's not godly or elevates God is it becomes idolatry. And we can pray to these false gods, but they don't answer We confess our sins to these gods, but they don't hear us. They can't speak to us. We can ask for help, but they're not going to help us. We can long for power, but they're not going to give it to us. I'm reading 1 Samuel with Russell right now, and he's just learning how to read. He's a first grader, and he's been at our core group, and he's heard that we're reading the Bible, so he wants to read the first verses for us as we're reading. It's just exciting, you know, to have your son loving the word, and he's got his giant print New King James out there, and he's reading 1 Samuel out loud, and it's just like, oh, this is awesome. And he's reading about how they took the Ark of the Covenant, the Philistines did. They took it into the Temple of Dagon. And, you know, the first night, this this, uh, false god of Dagon falls over in front of the altar in the middle of the night. And so they go in there and they're like, what the heck? And they go and they set this false god back up and they're like, stay there, you know. And they leave and the next night it falls over. What is going? They set it back up again. And the next night it falls over and the, you know, the hands fall off, the arms fall off, the legs fall off, the head. It was just a torso, all right? And, and it just shows to us that these, you got to set your idol back up. you got to control your idol. you got to make stuff happen. And it's the same thing with false spirituality, all right? got to make stuff happen. It can't fulfill that inner need that the Lord alone brings. And all of this gives us insight to what a non-Christian man or woman is involved in. Here's what John Calvin says on this. He says, let us learn from this passage how great is the blindness of the human mind. When it is without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, inasmuch as it stands in amazement of dumb idols and cannot rise higher in searching after God, Nay, more, it is led by Satan as if it were a brute. And that's where we are without the true Holy Spirit working within us. We are actually led by Satan as men and women, as if we were brutes. I'm not going to ask you to flip too many places today, but would you flip over to Ephesians chapter 2? And if you get a chance, maybe just hop over to Titus chapter 3 as well. The Corinthians were in the same place and coming out of the same things that these Ephesians were, that the uh, people that Titus was ministering to. And you know what? It's just no different to the people that we're ministering to here in 2013 Prineville. It says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So without Jesus, where are you? You're not just a good person that just needs to find your way. No, you are someone that is depraved. You're walking according to the course of the world. And who is your king? Satan is your king. In verse 3, it says, You once conducted yourself in the lust, or we, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Hop down a few verses to verse 11. Remember 
that you were once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision. Let's just hop down to verse 12. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we have a beautiful picture of Christ's redemption of sinners. But we see that man without Christ, they're not good people. Romans is right in chapter 3 when it says there's no one good. There's no one inherently innocent. No, not one. Without Jesus. And if you're here today and you're just trying to be religious and not be about Jesus and have him be the Lord and Savior of your life, this is you. Slap a bunch of makeup on yourself and call yourself a Christian, but in truth, you are aliens apart from God, children of wrath, but God wants to bring you close. God desires to draw you near, but if you're apart from Christ, you're just like the Corinthians, you're led astray by dumb idols, And it looks different to you right now. You don't got a fish God named Dagon that keeps falling over in your living room. And perhaps you don't have an altar in your living room with some kind of elephant shrine or something like that. But you've got your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your your animal, your mule, your kitten, your whatever, your dirt bike. All right. And you're bowing the knee to it as the fulfillment of everything. We've been created to be worshipers and you got to worship something. And if it's not Jesus, it's demonic. Titus chapter 3 just says we were once foolish in verse 3. Disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. This is Titus 3 verse 4. But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. I love that contrast. Then you have the redemptive Jesus coming in. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And it just goes on to just one great radical redemptive indication for our life of what Jesus has come to save us. He's come to save us. The point of all this is, just like the Corinthians We too, before Jesus, we were children of wrath. We were aliens from the the blessings of God. We were at war with him. Rather, we were war with him. All right? And once we're saved, we bring all of that baggage into our Christianity with us. We bring all that baggage. We bring all of that past into us. And so, praise God, he raises up pastors and teachers to, to speak truth into our lives. This is why we spend so much time in the scriptures here at the church, because you guys and myself, we need to be equipped that we might not be immature, but we might know what truth is. Because if we're immature, Ephesians chapter four says we're tossed around like a little baby, like in the waves of the sea. All right. And we need to know what truth is so that we can be effective for his kingdom. The main factor in determining what's genuinely spiritual is not does it get us all sorts of tickles like all the stuff used to give us tickles before Jesus, but rather verse 3, and you might just note in your Bible or note in your notes, verse 3 and 4 give us the main factor in determining what is genuinely spiritual. And it's regarding the matter of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verse 3, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. All right? As David Gutzik says, a broad principle for discerning matters regarding spiritual gifts, judge things by how they relate to Jesus Christ, okay? Judge things by how they relate to Jesus Christ. Does a supposed spiritual gift that you may have, he may have, she may have, does it glorify Jesus and lift him up? Or does it promote a true Jesus or a false Jesus? Or does it lift up the individual or the movement rather than Jesus? Notice in the beginning of verse 3 that word, therefore, There's a reason it's there. We need to look back. What's he talking about? Remember, he was talking about the Corinthians past idol worship. These dumb images. And as God corrected them in their error and brings them back by his kindness into the way of truth, he lays out good doctrine concerning spiritual matters. As Calvin says, he at the same time derives an argument from opposite causes to opposite effects. And if you got that in verse 3, you got two things that that show if someone's really spiritual. First of all, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. On the opposite end of that, equally true, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, no one can say that Jesus is accursed. Well, who would do that anyways? (laughs) Does that really happen? Many commentaries say, this is hypothetical. I mean, no one, even in the Corinthian church, says Jesus is accursed. Man, you would be surprised where false teaching takes you, even among Christian organizations, Christian churches. The word accursed here is the Greek word anathema, and it speaks of something that is set up or laid up in order to be kept, like a ritual offering that after it was consecrated to a god, it was like set back in the temple and even hung on the wall, to to be reminded of something that was rejected by God. And many people do that today. They take the offering of Jesus and they call it anathema and they set up these images of Jesus hanging up in the back of some uh, cathedral or in the back of some synagogue, not synagogue, but uh, chapel. Help me out here. Cathedral, chapel, whatever. Church, whatever. All right. And they place, even in the back of their heart, they place Jesus back there as one who is ineffective now One who is ineffective and he's just conspicuous, all right? Not really useful anymore. To say it from Charles Hodges, much more intelligent words, anathema strictly means something consecrated to God, devoted to destruction, and then divine displeasure. Hence, to say Jesus is accursed is to say he was a malefactor, someone justly condemned to death. This is what the Jews said when they invoked his blood upon their heads. And so to say Jesus deserved death. And so when we read this phrase, no one can say that Jesus is a curse, speaking of the whole, in the Holy Spirit. If someone is truly born again and the Holy Spirit speaking through them, they cannot declare this to be true. Even if they were forced to renounce their faith. The Holy Spirit would bring the boldness and the power 
to stand strong and to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. The opposite end is no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So our questions that it asks, and you've probably asked already, does this mean that anyone can just say Jesus is Lord and mouth the words and have them come up and it means that they're like born again, that's it? Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, after Peter said, I say that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. Or as Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 39, don't forbid those who are baptizing that aren't with us. No one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. To speak of Jesus being Lord in the Holy Spirit was the same as speaking like an Old Testament prophet did. It's speaking forth truth and authority. And John chapter 15 verse 26 says that when the helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, and I'm sending him from the Father, he's the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Or one chapter later in John chapter 16, he will glorify me, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's job is not to promote himself or any man, but to glorify God and represent Jesus. This is crucial for all matters of spirituality. In John, 1 John chapter 4, John lived in an age of Gnosticism, very much like our Jehovah's Witnesses of the day. And the heresy that declared that Jesus never came in the flesh. And 1 John 4, 2 through 3 says, this is how you know If the spirit is of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist who you heard was coming and is already in the world. All right. So in the context of first John, people were saying Jesus didn't come in the flesh. You can't have spirit and matter go hand in hand because matter is wicked. And so they denied Jesus coming in the flesh and living the life of a man, fully God and fully man here on earth. When we begin to drift away towards false doctrine and deception, you will be taught to believe heresy to the point of calling Jesus accursed, calling Jesus not sufficient, calling someone who, Jesus someone who has displeased God. Leon Morris A great preacher, commentator, refers to Galatians 3.13, where it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Leon Morris says, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that exciting people, excitable people, and imperfectly instructed Corinthians had distorted Galatians 3.13 By means of some ecstatic utterance. That means the Corinthians could be being deceived through a verse like Galatians 3.13 to say that Jesus was a curse. And God has no pleasure in him. And even within the church today, just because someone comes out with powerful language and thousands or millions of followers on Facebook or Twitter doesn't mean they're true. They might be sensuous people, exciting people with an exciting environment and all kinds of wonderful music and yelling and shouting and yelling and screaming to accompany them. They might be on the late night show with Jimmy Fallon. They might be on, you know, uh, the Oprah Winfrey show. 
They might have all sorts of applause. That doesn't make them true. It doesn't make them true. And many of you here, I fear, think that that makes them true. How would God give them these places of prominence? You've got to admit there's something to it. That guy's smile. That guy's speech. That guy's mighty works. He kicks an old lady in her stomach with his biker boot and she has stomach cancer and knocks her down. No one would do that unless they must really be from God. This is true stuff, people. People follow guys like that. You know? Yeah! All right? No evidence of healings of this little old lady. In fact, to the contrary. But we're going to follow him and declare that he is of God. Because they're coming out with a lot of hype doesn't mean they're true. And so we are warned from this context not to judge accuracy or true doctrine on the basis of our experience, but rather on the basis, basis of context. Of context. All of these verses have something to do with the spiritual gift section that's to follow. It's all in context. The context is doctrinal. We will never be able to spot what's counterfeit unless we know what is genuine. Corinthians, you know you always follow dumb idols. Here's the way to gauge true manifestations of the Spirit. And now, through the rest of this chapter, here are some wonderfully true, diverse gifts given by that one true God that show he is manifest. But you got to know truth. You got to know doctrine. You got to know what's right. You will never be able to spot what's counterfeit until you know what is true. And it's not by taking one verse here and one verse here out of context. It's to know Genesis through Revelation, the whole context of scripture, the whole purpose of God in redeeming his church, the whole purpose of the church, the whole purpose of brothers and sisters, the whole purpose of spiritual gifts, we need to know it. And God give us understanding in these next few weeks. But in verses three and four, I'll just let you know, or in verse three, I'll just let you know we're not gonna get through verse six. What a person does in regards to the lordship of Jesus Christ is the test as to whether or not he's done something by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always leads people to ascribe lordship to Jesus Christ in, in a real, genuine way. How do we know what is real and genuine? Let me just speak from Calvin once again. To say that Jesus is accursed is to utter blasphemy against him. To say that Jesus is the Lord is to speak of him in honorable terms and with reverence and to extol his majesty. Here it is asked, as the wicked sometimes speak of Christ in honorable and magnificent terms, is this an indication that they have the spirit of God? And, and Calvin answers, they undoubtedly have so far as that effect is concerned. But the gift of regeneration is one thing, and the gift of bare intelligence with which Judas himself was endowed when he preached the gospel is quite another. In other words, just because someone mouths the words, Jesus is Lord, doesn't mean they're saved. 
Anybody can do that. And many wicked, wicked men have said that, that have led many men and women to hell. This phrase, Jesus is Lord, is an incredible matter of sincere, sensitive, true, heartfelt confession. Anybody can mouth the words. And we see this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. What? Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Hey, Many will say to the Lord on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Haven't we been really dramatic and seemingly spiritual and just totally ecstatic? Yeah, you sure did. But you were false. There was no truth in it. And I will declare from my mouth away from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. What is the test of someone who declares Jesus as Lord? Crazy stuff that they do. Is that the test? It is obedience to the word of God. It's obedience to the word of God. It's obedience to the word of God. It's obedience to the word of God. Of God. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I tell you? You're fooling yourself. You are fooling yourself. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know there is truth. There is truth. There's a way to gauge what is really of the Lord. Don't just take one sound bite on the air as showing someone is genuine or not genuine. You dig in to how they teach the passages that deal with Jesus. And many of these famous men say that Jesus isn't the only way. And Jesus isn't God. And it doesn't really matter if he was born of a virgin. All right? And he's not the only way. And anyone actually is just going to make it to heaven anyways. All right? There's a lot that they've strayed from truth in, even though they are just incredible people to listen to. And they tickle your ears and they make you cry and they make your heart jump inside. People tell me all the time, Rory, I just love your passion. I love your passion. Passion is nothing if it's not grounded in truth. It's nothing. Paul says we'd better have an objective standard to measure all of this. And to confess Jesus is Lord means nothing unless it involves the affirming of his person and of his work and of the obeying of his commandments. You can only say that Jesus is Lord by the ministry of the Holy Spirit dramatized in a life of wholehearted obedience. So keep this in the forefront of your mind as we get into this chapter dealing with spiritual gifts. And you know what? The Holy Spirit, he's wonderful. He's great. He's real. He's alive in the church today. He gives gifts to the church today. But he's always going to testify of Jesus and magnify Jesus. And we'll see how in the weeks to come. Let's have the worship team come on up. I know you guys are really excited to get through verse 6 today, but 
Not going to happen. I'm just as surprised as you guys. As we come to the communion table, we're going to be partaking of the altar today. We're going to be taking the elements of communion that represent the blood and the body of Jesus poured out for us for the redemption from our sins to take us from that place of being aliens and strangers and foreigners and at war with God involved in all kinds of lewd and crude acts exalting ourselves against God during those times that we were there God sent his son to die for us that we might be purchased from sin and from death And so as we come to the communion table today, I encourage you to search your heart and to come as we learned last week in a worthy manner. I'm not saying make yourself worthy before you come to the table. I'm saying, do you have a heart even today that's in rebellion to the word of God? Do you have a heart that wants to do what you want to do? Or will you bow the knee to the Lord Jesus? Do you have a heart that calls Jesus anathema and you call him accursed by the way that you believe his promises and believe what he's said? Essentially in your heart, you're saying, ah, don't need him. He's worthless. His whole sacrifice on the cross, it was just, it wasn't that big of a deal. I would encourage you today to confess a heart like that and to declare that Jesus is Lord. To declare Jesus is Lord. And just maybe you're struggling with that and you could just say, Holy Spirit, take me there. Holy Spirit, soften my heart, take me there. Help me to repent of my past ideas and take me there, Lord. That I might say Jesus is Lord. He is who he said he was. He's, as Peter says in Acts chapter two, he's both Lord and Christ. He's my savior and he's my king. Don't come to the communion table today just saying, oh yeah, he saved me from my sins, but he's not gonna be my Lord. I got a lot of stuff to do. Don't partake if that's your heart. But come to the table today saying he is master, he is ruler, he is savior. And as you come to the table today, you, you hold the, the cup and you hold the bread and you're reminded of his blood poured out to forgive you of your sins and his body that was beaten and bruised and pierced for your sins. And you might be reminded today of some sins that you've got in your life that you're holding on to, that you're not forsaking. And before you partake, you confess those to the Lord. You repent of those things. You purpose in your heart to destroy those altars to those pagan gods. And as you partake, you set up the true altar to the living God today. You can come forward as you're ready to the table and take the elements to your seat. Do your heart check before the Lord and allow him to point out wicked ways in you and then allow him to lead you in the way of everlasting this morning.
come forward during this last song and take communion. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.